You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be in Psalm 112. And um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. And in that blue Bible, you can turn to page 292. Uh, that is uh, the Psalm uh, 112 we will, where we will be. And if you don't own a Bible, and this blue Bible that you're picking up is the first one you've ever held, or um, it's, it's a, something you haven't dug into on your own, um, I'd invite you to take that home with you today after worship, because we're going to look at one Psalm, and we know there's 150 Psalms that we could look into, uh, but we have like 40, 50 minutes to go through one this morning. And that's one psalm of 150, and there's 65 other books in the Bible that um, we will find to be a source of wisdom and hope and uh, how God reveals himself through his word. And so before we read, I need to kind of prepare you for Psalm 112, okay? And so um, there's this diagram here, and so for you graphic designers, um, uh, close your eyes or just show me some mercy, okay? But... Um, I did make this, and I'll be signing copies in the bookstore after the worship, but uh, I made it simple, and what this is illustrating is how Psalm 112 has a companion, and its companion is Psalm 111, and they obviously are right next to each other, but what Psalm 111 does is it paints a picture about God. It shows God's character and his works. It kind of culminates at the end of Psalm 111 on God's redemption, and then it returns with Psalm 112 with what a godly man is like and how he reflects things about God's character and how he works. And so it's called a chiastic structure. You don't need to know that word, um, but I tried to simplify it just so you would see as we're in Psalm 112, there's a lot that we can glean from the previous psalm. So um, I invite you to join me to Psalm 112, and as we read, think about that. Think about that structure, and what are some things that the psalm is describing about this man that are like God? Okay, so join me, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends and who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. (laughs) 
to begin, I have a riddle for you, and I want you to see if you can uh, solve this riddle. You probably won't, but (laughs) (laughs) you were designed to live with it, but it does not come naturally to you. It's an essential thing for an effective and uh, productive life, but it's not something you can buy. You would think that you could get it by work ethic and experience and research, but you don't. And we all want to say that we're rich in it, but we're really not. You might have gotten it, you may not have, but the answer to this riddle is wisdom. And you see, wisdom is something that I could confidently say that everybody in this room we like. We, it's a compliment to say, oh, you're wise, or it's a good thing to seek wisdom. And even if you're not sure if wisdom is something you really value, just think in, think in your minds as I ask you these questions, what is the next big decision in your life? Okay, or what is the most recent problem to come up? Could be this week or uh, in this past year. And so if you have something in your mind, think, what are the resources you go to to help you understand and respond to this decision or this problem. Or maybe it's a person. Like, who is the person that shows wisdom in your life when you have these questions? Who do you go to? And so you see, wisdom is something we're looking for, and it's not really a new thing, okay? Because in the Psalm, Psalm 112, in the context of what this was written for, the nation of Israel was seeking after wisdom. This is, this is something that all people have always valued. And for Israel, they found wisdom in God's word, in the Psalms, the Psalm of Wisdom that we're reading. And there's also different sources of wisdom around the nation of Israel. So there's the pagans and the the people who worship idols around Israel. And God would over and over in the Old Testament tell them, don't go worship these other gods, listen to my word and remember what I have done. And so it's not a new thing. In, in the Old Testament, in the time of the psalm, everyone was on this quest for wisdom. We're doing it today. And so the reason I'm talking about wisdom and getting, getting you excited about it is because Psalm 112 is a wisdom psalm. And that's going to be really helpful for us this morning because we don't really know the author. It's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the author of Psalm 112. And because we don't really know the author, we don't really know the exact date that it was written. And because we don't really know the date, it's hard to know the immediate audience that it was written for besides the Israelites. And so categorizing the Psalms into a Psalm of lament or a Psalm of praise or a Psalm of wisdom or like last Sunday, a Psalm of thanksgiving, it helps our approach as we read the word. And so in a wisdom psalm, it carries this theme of wisdom literature that we see in the Old Testament. Not always, but it's a, it's a, it's a helpful theme to, to see in Psalm 112, and it contrasts the righteous and the wicked. And so that's what we, kind of our outline for this morning is we're going to get introduced to the subject of this psalm, that's verse 1, and then verses 2 through 9 are going to be all about the subject, who is the righteous man and what he does and what he's like. And then verse 10 is going to contrast with the wicked man and how he responds to what the righteous person does. So that's our general outline. 
I hope it's kind of helpful to, to help our approach here. And because it's kind of a, a short psalm, it'll pretty, be pretty easy for us to see the key things that we want to zoom in on. And so we'll just go verse by verse, beginning in verse 1. I'll just read it quickly. Verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Okay, we're introduced to the subject, this man who fears God. And a question, a reasonable question, is what does it mean to fear God? I've always kind of struggled to articulate that because fear is usually something that we don't like. But this is, this psalm is pointing us to fear God. And so remember, this psalm is a psalm of wisdom and it has a companion, right? Psalm 111. So if you still have it open, look back one verse. Psalm 111, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord. Okay, so now we're going to get maybe an answer on what that is. Is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. Okay, so this is this has told us now that the people who fear God are the same people who have found wisdom and delight in God's word. And I understand that's pretty easy for me to just say that, and that if you fear God, you love his word and find wisdom there. But how do we make sense of this? And so I think the easiest and most, most common way to point to uh, how we can find God's word being wise and, and fearing God to be good is looking at Genesis 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to read all of it. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the story and look at one verse. But in Genesis chapter 3, God had created, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, he had created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He had made the mountains and the trees and the people, so Adam and Eve. And he had put Adam and Eve in this garden of Eden. And he um, had created them in his image and had given them this job to take care of and have dominion over all the things that he had made in the garden. And God gave them one rule. And that one rule in the garden was to enjoy everything, but there's one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that if they ate of it, they would die. And so God said, don't eat from that tree, but enjoy everything else. And that's a pretty good rule. He's restraining them from something that would be bad. It would be deadly for them. So God gave them a good command. But then along came, in chapter 3 of Genesis, the serpent. And the serpent went up to Eve and said, did God really say not to eat from that tree in the middle of the garden? Did he really say that you couldn't do it? And, well, uh, Eve said, well, God said that we could have everything in this garden, but we cannot eat from that tree because we'll die. And then the serpent responds, oh, God knows that it'll make you like him. It'll make you wise. It won't make you die. And the serpent is deceiving Eve. And in verse 6, after he had tempted her, it says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she ate it and gave some to her husband, who was with her. And so what happened here? The serpent, who was part of this creation in the garden that Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over, the serpent was not created in God's image. Adam and Eve were. And so when they listened to 
the wisdom from the serpent, that's rebellion. And so they've kind of rejected what God had uh, commanded them and started listening to um, the serpent. And so what was the real issue here? That's what I want to get from this. What was the real issue? The issue with the fall is that Adam and Eve believed that God was wrong. They believed that his good command for them wasn't wise anymore. The foolishness of the fall was not trusting God and forgetting that his commands were good. So how do we kind of sum this up? And and where has this brought us? Well, the fear of God is not a terrifying fear of him. It's, It's like a parental fear. God has given us some, as a father, giving us good commands and to recognize that we are created and, and that we need his, his word to, to guide us. And so God's people find wisdom in God's word. And so now, now that we've met the righteous man in verse 1, how he loves God's word, let's look at verses 2 and 3, and that'll tell us maybe what he is like. Verses 2 and 3 say, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Those are pretty bold claims. Wealth and riches, and his uh, offspring will be mighty in the land. And so a shallow reading would really make us think, oh, okay, well, if I love God's word, my children will become president, and I will get a nice car and a nice house and a lot of money. Well, that's That'd be a shallow reading, right? So we're looking at a wisdom psalm. Expect a little bit of depth, maybe. And so where is this taking us? I believe this section is showing us that this godly disciple that is fearing God and loving his word, he's a blessing to those around him, specifically those closest to him. So his offspring and the, the people that he is doing life with, it, for us, it's this church and the people that we're close to. And that's why we love living in communities because as we seek God's word, um, God's people become a blessing to those closest to them. And, and I kind of want to, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because this is also a call to take life seriously, okay? Because if, if where we find our wisdom from has an effect on the people closest to us, then it kind of matters where we're getting our wisdom from, doesn't it? And just think about this. We just talked about Adam and Eve, right? What did they do? They sought wisdom outside of God's word. Hey, you can't tell me that this hasn't even, that this hasn't affected you today. That the generations after Adam and Eve hasn't led to all, all this suffering and, and pain in this world, that had an impact. And that was when Adam and Eve were in the garden with God. So this matters, and it's a call to take life seriously. So let's kind of summarize, summarize where we are now. So Psalm 112 is about a godly man who finds his wisdom in God's word. It's a call to take life seriously because it influences those closest to us. And so now the question is, what is that influence? What's the impact on the world around this disciple? Well, let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously 
and lens who conducts his affairs with justice. So the first observation here is, what is this light in the darkness for this disciple? Well, recently we covered Psalm 119, and one of the verses in there, uh, verse 105, says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so the light that is dawning in the darkness for the upright is, is showing that God's word is the guide for the man to bless the people around him. And so we're not left to our own wisdom to figure out how to do it. God's word now becomes the guide for this, for this godly man. And so you might ask, what more? Okay, so what does he actually show and how is he um, actually blessing others? Well, it shows that the man is gracious and he's merciful and he's righteous and he's even generous in lending to the people around him. And so remember the diagram that we looked at a moment ago, that chiastic structure helps us understand what, what do you mean by grace and mercy and righteousness? What do you mean by generosity? Well, Psalm 111, I'll just read it if you still have it open. Look at verse 4 of 111. It says, God has, God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and he provides food to those who fear him. You see that? So all these things that the godly man is showing, he's showing grace and he's showing mercy and righteousness and generosity, it's a reflection of what God does. And so the whole time that we're reading here, it, it would be, we'd be limiting ourselves to think that, oh, we've got to come up with grace. We've got to come up with mercy in and of ourselves. But all of it is an opportunity for us to reflect things about God. And at the middle of that is God's redemption. God is providing the means and the ability for us to do this. And so the gospel is all about this, isn't it? John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. So God is showing mercy and grace toward the world. That he what? He gave his son. So what is our example for love to the world? It's God. What is our example for generosity? It's Jesus. And we get to display that so people see, not us, but we can point them to God. And that's what this godly man is doing. And it's, it's showing that God's people are not window, or God's people are windows, not paintings. We get to point people to, to see um, the grace and mercy that God has provided to us. And so a reasonable question now is, why does God use us? If God is the giver of grace and mercy and righteousness, why would he use us that are depending on him for that? We'll look at 2 Corinthians 4. I think that's like probably the, I guess, a set of verses I love to help understand this. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7 say, this is Paul writing to Corinth. It says, For God said... For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Okay, so God who created everything, that's who we're talking about, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, so the treasure is this knowledge of Jesus Christ in jars of clay. 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What does that mean? It means that God is choosing to use us, jars of clay, weak vessels, to put on display his glory working through us. And so I believe God chooses to use us, his people, for two reasons. One, it's because he loves you. Okay, so if you're sitting here wondering, why would God consider me? It's because he so loved you. The second thing, God is on this mission to extend his glory all over the world. And so he just so chooses to use the least likely people, there's one standing on stage right now, to extend his glory and show that there is no way that this is possible unless God is working through these people. Because in reality, we're, we're broken, needy, dependent people, and it's, it's God's mercy and generosity to use us. So where are we in this psalm? God's disciples are finding wisdom in his word, and that results in being a blessing to the people closest to him. And the result is that we're now like windows through which people can see God at work. So verses 6 through 8 build upon that. Let's, let's look at that now. Verses 6 through 8, For the righteous will never be moved, who will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So this section is the section that really started working in me a couple months ago. And I want you to see that it's kind of a reality check. Because we've been talking really ideally about this godly man who's a blessing to people, and God's word is his guide. But this is showing us that even for him, even for somebody who loves God's word and is following, um, an easy life is not promised. Okay? In John 16, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, in this world you will have tribulation. It's, it's like it's promised that we will have trials and things that might cause us to be moved or there might be bad news coming our way. And so this section is opening us, to, opening, opening us up to the reality that there's things to be afraid of in this world. The reality of fear. And First, I want to um, make clear that fear isn't inherently a bad thing. I mean, we saw in verse 1 that we want to fear God, and that's a good thing. And God had made us with this capacity to fear for our good. And here's just a quick example. A few weeks ago, we celebrated our birth anniversary, seven years as a church. And I was talking to a fellow dad, or a, not a fellow dad, I'm not a dad, a, a dad... <laughs> Uh, excuse me, get some water. Um, a dad in our congregation, and he was holding his, his baby, and I was talking to him, and he told me that, I think the day before, this baby had somehow at the top of the stairs managed to, I don't know, open the, the baby gate or like crawl through some uh, cat door or something like that, had managed to, at the top of the stairs, get through that. And so this mom and dad were in the house, maybe in a room next, right next to it, and all they heard was thud, 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 falling down the stairs. 
And I'm standing here listening to him tell this story, holding on to his baby. I'm like, what's, how are you okay? And turns out the baby was fine, but how did they respond? They hear this, their baby falling down the stairs. That's scary. And I don't have kids, to remind you, but... <laughs> I, <laughs> um, but I think that's a good example of fears kind of a good thing sometimes. It's good that a mother or father can respond with this aching fear and concern for their child. That's a good thing. And praise God for that. Because it'd be kind of weird if you couldn't, if you're leaving today and you see a car accident and you're like, hmm, who's going to clean that up? And you don't think about the person that's in a car accident. It's good to have fear for things that you know, draw our hearts to care. That's a good thing. So what I want to say this morning, the question is not, are you afraid? I know you're afraid. There's things to be afraid of. The question is, does fear rule your heart? Because that's a different thing. And fear can rule our hearts for a variety of reasons. You might be thinking of stuff already, but what the psalmist is pointing out right now, and that's what I want to focus on, is that the man is not afraid of bad news, okay? And what's bad news? Well, bad news is usually stuff that we have limited control over. You're kind of worried about an outcome. And if you're like me, if there's something you don't have control over, your mind just goes straight to the worst possible outcome that could happen in that situation. And so the psalmist is calling us to think about this righteous man, how he's not afraid of bad news. Because fear tends to rule our hearts when we have limited control over an outcome. So let me ask you a few questions, starting with, what is your relationship with things that you have limited control over? What's your relationship with that? What happens in your heart when your health isn't doing things that you want it to? Or your relationships aren't working out the way that you had planned, or you're experiencing rejection from a friend or somebody that you're close with, or what happens in your heart when someone tells you that they don't like you? Or if you hear that somebody's talking bad about you behind your back? What happens in your heart when you have a big test or a big project to be preparing for? What happens in your heart when you turn on the news and you see people talking about uh, wars and politics and stuff like that? What happens in your heart when your new puppy is doing puppy things all over your house? What happens in your heart when your parents or your kids aren't living the way that you think they should? I hope that I've stirred up some thoughts in your mind, and I hope you're with me on where this is going, because if the psalmist is telling us that the righteous man is not afraid of bad news, and that his heart is firm, trusting in God, I have to tell you, I'm not good at that. This is something I really struggle with because after reading this psalm, I, I knew that I have tendencies to try and be a controlling person. And if you know me, that's, that's not something I'm surprised by. But I didn't really know why. And what this psalm kind of showed me is that the things that I'm afraid of are the things that I try and control. I'm afraid of the outcome. And just a couple of examples, in any sort of like leadership position that I've had, I really struggled to delegate 
delegate tasks to other people. And why is that? Well, I can't control how people work. I, I, I want to do all the work so that I can tr- tr- control the outcome, but I can't do that. And so it's fear that's motivating this control. In school, I just started school again, and I spent an unhealthy amount of time organizing and preparing and studying. Why? I'm afraid of what my classmates or my professors are going to think of me. It begins to rule my heart and how I, how I try and control the outcome of stuff that I have limited control over. It shows up in my relationships. I set unreasonable expectations on people, and, and if I get too close to somebody, I can't really control what they're going to think of me. And that's scary. That's scary for me because these are all my attempts to try and get some sort of stability horizontally from the things in my life and leadership stuff or school, other activities, my relationships. I'm trying to get some sort of stability and comfort and control there horizontally. But if, if you're like me or if you have some stuff in your mind right now, you have to admit it's not sustainable, is it? It's probably not working to try and control the people in your life or all of your circumstances. And what this psalm, the hope that this psalm is pointing us toward, this righteous man is getting his stability vertically. He's getting it from God. And so I have something kind of silly, but it's very simple. It's good advice and it's good news. The things that you cannot control, whatever came to your mind, are the things that you cannot control. And there's no typo there. I copied and pasted. The things you cannot control are the things that you cannot control. And our culture and our hearts will tell us that that is a disaster. When, when the things around you, you can't control, think of like a virus or something like that where we have limited control over or governments and he said and she said, the people in your life, your health. Our culture tells you that that's a disaster. You need to be afraid of that. But the psalmist is telling you that this is actually a freedom, okay? Why is it a freedom to say, I don't have control over everything? Why is that a freedom? Here's what I mean. God is not surprised that we're like this, okay? He knew that we would fall short in these areas. And so what did he do? He sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. And Jesus never struggled with this. Jesus never tried to get stability from his circumstances and the people around him, and he lived a perfect life in ways that we could, we could never do. And how did the people respond? Well, some people followed him, his disciples followed him, and he had some people that listened to him, but there's a lot of people that didn't like him. And they responded to his perfection and his humility to the point where they started to accuse him innocently for crimes that he didn't commit. And where did that take him? Took him to a cross. And he was innocent on that cross. And in that moment on the cross, you see this in Matthew's gospel, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, you would think that Jesus doesn't know what's going on. You would think that Jesus is afraid of the bad news that he's now being crucified when he was innocent. And if you're a disciple standing 
watching or running away. This is not how my Messiah was supposed to be. He's being killed for things he didn't do. But when Jesus is quoting actually a psalm, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's quoting Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, that's King David writing it in a moment where he was feeling afraid. He was writing Psalm 22 when he was feeling forgotten, like God had abandoned him. And so why did Jesus quote that? Why did he choose to say that on the, on, on the cross? is to tell us something, that the cross has a purpose. It wasn't bad news. And I can tell you that if you are a Christian, you never have to fear what Jesus went through on the cross that day because he absorbed all the wrath and the punishment and the fear that we, we could reasonably have, but he absorbed it for us on our behalf. And so if you're trusting in Christ, or if this is maybe the first time you've heard and understood the gospel, I can tell you that this bad news that it looked like to talk about Jesus, the worst news that we could imagine, what do we call that? We call it the gospel. How, what's another way that we can describe the gospel? It's good news. And so for the Christian, the worst news in the world is now good news. And so if you're in Christ, you're freed from fear. But you're not fear-free because now you have control of your circumstances or because you have nothing to fear around you. There's good reasons to fear. You're freed from fear. It doesn't need, it doesn't need to rule your heart anymore because you now get your stability and confidence vertically. And you no longer need the things around you, your circumstances, to go well. Because your heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Isn't that so much better than trying to get stability from the world around you? And that you can walk out of here today knowing that your stability does not come from this world. And it's, it's actually found in this book. So the triumph of the cross is our stability. And it's now our ability to do what is shown in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, This righteous man has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So remember, this psalm is all about reflecting God. Remember that diagram that was shown on the, the slide it's all about reflecting God. And so when we hear about Jesus from God's word, our belief and our trust in that impacts the people closest to us. We've talked about this, and it begins to help us reflect God's character to the world around us. Why? How can we do this? Because our stability now comes from Christ. And this changes everything in your life because your hearts are no longer ruled by fear. We're not going to do this perfectly, but God is producing this in us as we progress in our lives. And so I think it's because we don't do it perfectly, I think it's intentionally at the end of the psalm. Because it doesn't begin with this righteous man is generous and lends. It begins with the man who fears God and delights in his word. And so 
produces horizontally blessing to the people around us. And that is only possible out of a life that's been radically changed. So you remember the structure of this, this wisdom psalm, how it contrasts the righteous with the wicked? We're nearing the end. Verse 10, I'll reread that real quick. It says that the wicked man sees it, so sees what the righteous man is doing, his, his generosity toward others, the grace that he shows to people around him. The wicked man sees that, and he's angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. You see, the wicked in this world are frustrated. It, they might get frustrated with the things um, that a righteous person does. And why? Why are they so frustrated about it? Well, it kind of makes sense, and I think the psalm makes it pretty clear. It's abnormal to have stability in this world, isn't it? It's kind of abnormal. And so the people who don't know God and aren't delighting in what God has done for them, they're still living in that illusion that they can get some sort of stability horizontally. That, that there's something to be offered in this world that is actually lasting. But it's an illusion, isn't it? And, and so how, the, the question now is, so how do we respond to that? And the last thing we should do is look down and be disgusted with people who are upset about uh, the way a Christian lives. We should respond with compassion. Why? Because the only thing that's separating you from that person is that God has shown mercy on you and invaded your life. And that happened because some faithful person looked at you when you were running with the world, whether it was a week ago or 10 years ago, somebody looked at you and said, that person needs hope. Whether it was your, your mom and dad or some, a member of Connection Church, maybe somebody else, that you met, somebody gave you that hope and told you about the work of Jesus and what he's done for you and that there's actually stability offered that's not of this world. So here's where I want to close. We've talked about how the, the whole world is on this constant search for wisdom. It's something we all want. And the whole world is searching for happiness and pleasure and joy. We're doing it too. But if you're a Christian, or if, or if you've heard this message of the gospel this morning, you're like, that actually sounds like wisdom. You can say that you found it. In a world of searching, you can stand up today and say, I have actually found it. I have found wisdom. I found joy and, and stability. And I found it in this word. And people here understand, it. We, we know that the Word is actually a person. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, your Word is wisdom. It's a, it's a light that guides us and it helps produce things in us that we never thought that we could. I thank you for your Word this morning that could be uh, an encouragement to myself and the people hearing um, both here in this room and over Facebook. And I just thank you that Christ is now our stability and that, and that just changes everything in our lives. 
and we're able to reflect good things and be a blessing to the people around us. God, we um, ask you to help us as we um, respond to this and, and consider how this actually might give us some hope in a, in a crazy world around us. God, we love you and we thank you and we want to give you glory for everything that you've done for us and are doing through us. In Jesus' name, amen.